Hello and welcome to the Rodeo Labs podcast. My name is Logan Jones Wilkins. I am your host today and we are on part two of the Race Director Roundup. This episode, we are focusing on what I like to call the mid-majors. These are the events that are not the largest, but they're not the smallest. They draw a pool of national, sometimes international competitors, but they are not those events that are pushing the thresholds of the sport. These are my favorite events. It's a long one. I'm not going to keep you too long on this introduction. I hope you enjoy part two of this production of the Rodeo Labs podcast. Rebecca, I want to start by talking about who you are at this point in your career. You've been a figure in adventure cycling and endurance athletics for a couple decades now at this point, and you've really embodied a lot of what we might associate with the spirit of gravel. I know this is a term that's kind of used and used and used, but you are like, in a way, that archetype. How do you describe yourself now if you're meeting someone new what is your day job yeah it's that's a really good question and yeah I've been an athlete for really for three decades also event promoter all this other stuff but I've been trying to like yeah what is my job description and really right now where I feel like it's sort of come full circle is is i I feel I'm more than an athlete. So I kind of refer to myself as an explorer and feeling like, you know, I'm exploring in the outdoors. That's always been my template for, um, you know, kind of joy and happiness. And my career is, is doing long ultra endurance things, not just cycling, but adventure racing and running and skiing. Um, but it's all had this exploratory feel, this curiosity to want to travel or see places, but I also feel like now it's it's exploring internally and exploring like who I am as a person. And so really my job description is an, is an explorer. And I use the template outdoors, movement in the outdoors, but hopefully then bringing those lessons back, those experiences back to share with other people. Because ultimately it's not just about me. It's about, you know, bringing others along with me on this exploration and adventure. I know a lot of, former athletes, especially endurance athletes, sort of face the long tail of retirement. Personally, <laughs> my dad, he just came out of his third hip surgery after his ultra running career yesterday. Um, I know a number of different cyclists on the, the road scene who've talked about the long trail of retirement. You've yeah. seemed to sidestep this a little bit by moving pretty early to projects that are more storytelling based. I can think particularly of the documentary you did looking at your, your father's uh, experience in the military and also some of the work you've done with your foundation. How has that transition from full-time athlete to someone else to a, a retired athlete? How has that gone over the last 10 years? You know, I mean, I've, it's funny. I hear people talk about now there's a term called privateer. I'm a privateer athlete. And I'm like, 
Well, that's just pretty much what I've been all along is like hustling for myself, you know, carving my own way, which is cool that people can do that. But I really think about this word retirement. And, you know, if we think about why did we get involved in the first place? And I got involved with sport in high school, cross country running. Didn't get involved thinking I'm going to be a professional athlete. I got involved for the joy of it and the movement and the community aspect of it. And so, you know, I've been lucky enough to carve a career out of it. But I think the important part when you think about what people would call retirement, it's like the arc of a career in any career, sport or not, shouldn't look the same. So even if you work for the same company for 30 years, you know, like me, I worked for the same company for 30 years, which is me. My job is not the same now as it was when I was 25. And neither would it be for a lawyer or a politician or, you know, somebody designing websites. And so I think it's important for athletes to think about there's not one arc of your career. And hopefully the theme of athletics and movement carry throughout. And, you know, when I was racing Leadville, I was really focused on that part of my career. 24-hour racing, really focused on that part of my career. Um, adventure racing, now bike packing and storytelling. Like all of that is an evolution of the same career. And so for people who are like, I'm going to retire, You hopefully you evolve. I, I'd hate the word retire because honestly, I hope I'm moving in the outdoors my whole life. And so the question, when are you going to retire? It's like, no, what's next? When are you going to evolve? And I think that that's been you know, looking back a little bit of the magic of the longevity of my career is that I didn't try to stay in the same thing for 30 years. You know, I allowed passions and opportunities to ebb and flow a little bit. And that's what's exciting about endurance sports is you can pick and choose like that. You can choose the races you go to. You can choose if you want to do women's clinics. You can choose if education is part of it for you or getting young people involved. So, um, you know, in a really rigid, like World Cup skiing um, kind of scenario, you're required to go to this series of races. Endurance sports, gravel riding especially, you know, is a little more open. So it does give people the opportunity to be creative with their careers. And so if somebody's like, oh, I'm nearing retirement, you know, how about nearing evolution? And you see that with gravel. You see a lot of road racers moving over. You see a lot of mountain bike racers moving over because there's a little more freedom to design a career that feels good for you. Or even if you're not a career athlete, design your race and adventure schedule for the summer. Mm-hmm. Ostensibly, this conversation is about private Idaho, but I wanted to bring <laughs> the, these larger topics of your life into it because it seems like private Idaho was something that came out of you feeling that adventurous spirit in your own life and trying to communicate that to others and trying to give that experience to others. Um, If I am correct, you started the race after you won DK 200 three times in a row. And (laughs) you started it in 2013 when gravel cycling was not something that it is now you don't have you didn't have specific bikes you didn't have a a calendar that was stretching year long it seemed like it was a very creative thing and very ambitious thing to do in the face of being a highly specialized elite or not specialized a highly elite athlete and it seems something that has a lot of foresight what was 
your feelings heading into that first edition and why did you choose to make that choice and start that event at that point? Yeah, I mean, I was not, I'm a mountain biker and, you know, people now put me in this gravel category, but I'm a mountain biker at heart and I live in a beautiful place, Idaho, and I always thought I would put on a mountain bike event here. And really with the, you know, me wanting to do an event started from me wanting to support my local community, wanting to like, you know, be able to hire local people, but also wanting to show people the magic of Idaho. And so I wanted to support the local community and economy. I wanted to support um, the cycling community and find a way to get more people exploring, you know, out of cell range and sort of off the beaten path. And that, you know, in the same year, I went to two events that were kind of, they were not mountain biking events. They were a little off the grid for me. And so I went to Levi's Grand Fondo, which was a road event. And I went to Unbound um, 200, a 200 mile gravel event. And both of those, I was kind of forced to go by a sponsor. I didn't really want to go. Um, but both of them really opened my eyes because I was like, I'm not a road racer. I don't want to go to these road events. They sound dumb. They sound boring. And what I found was, um, you know, at Unbound and winning that two, 200, that first 200 is that I felt like gravel road was this really nice, um, intersection between the cool things about road and the cool things about mountain biking. So it was more technical than I thought it was going to be. It was way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. It wasn't a big Peloton road race with like, you know, a bunch of people just staring at each other's butts. Like I had this solitude experience and then Levi's Grand Fondo, what that showed me. And again, that was a road race on pavement. And I was just like, oh, and I won that one too. But what I loved about that one was the really vast community aspect. They have a great party, tons of music, lots of distances, you know, so everyone from pros to like brand new people were there. And so those two things put together really got me thinking of like, maybe I should do a gravel road event in Idaho. Like maybe that's better. And the reason why and so I went exploring, I got on my motorcycle and I went all these places that I'd never been. And I've lived here 20 years and I went all these places that I'd never seen and had such a cool adventure that summer trying to piece together a gravel course. And you, like you said, I was riding a cyclocross bike. There's no gravel specific equipment. You know, I talked to friends. I'm like, should I do this? This seems really dumb. Nobody even knows what gravel riding is. And, um, the reason I, I, decided to do a gravel road event was, was that more people could come. It's more accessible for more people. Whereas we all know on single track mountain bike trails, you can only have so many people and then it's impact and it's not this solitude experience. So what I learned at those two events was really opened my eyes to a segment of cycling exploration that got me really excited as a pro athlete. I'm like, I've never been these places and I live here. And then it also got me really excited because I knew more people less, you know, it's not as intimidating, you know, and you can ride a mountain bike, you can ride a road bike, you can ride, now you can ride a gravel bike. And so I launched Private Idaho with the vision to, to give back. It's always been a fundraising event um, and to contribute to the community that home community and cycling community, sports community that have really shaped my life. And so it was my way of like bringing people along and, 
maybe it was visionary, but like I said earlier in the conversation, it was just something that I was like, that was really fun. How can I put my own twist on those two events and bring them together? And, and, oh my gosh, the backdrop of where I live is world class, you know, mm-hmm. and when I travel, people will be like, you live in Iowa or Ohio. And I was like, oh, no, no, it's really different. And I also really, I mean, now it's a tourist community. Idaho is on the map for sure. But what I still love about private Idaho is you leave town, you leave cell phone range, you go over Trail Creek Summit, and you are in another world that looks the same as it did 100 years ago. And it really allows people the opportunity to get off the beaten path. And that's why now you see this explosion of gravel, because people want to explore. People want to get out on their own solitary adventure they want to unplug from technology and so you know when people ask why is gravel growing so much it's because the world wants to explore you know we want to whether you're a racer or whether you're a new person you want to see something new that curiosity is really motivating and it's a theme that's through my whole career as a little kid in my backyard, like camping in my backyard. It's like a curiosity. And that's still the same motivation that I have of like, Oh, could I get to the top of that mountain? So, um, I know that's a really long answer, but I'm so glad I launched that event. And honestly, you know, I have to give props to the two events that I went to because they opened my eyes to a possibility that I hadn't considered. And then that's what creativity is. You take some cool things you see from someone else and you put your own twist on it. Mm-hmm. And so I put a mountain biking twist on private Idaho and, you know, brought in like from stage racing of mountain biking, what I knew I added the stage race concept because that's a really cool way for people to ride multiple days when they come here. So I took a lot of different pieces from my experience as an athlete to create something cool. Now here's where the fun begins, and my ADHD really gets to shine through as we hear from the rest of the gang. Starting up first, here is Andy Chastine from Rule of Three Gravel in Northwest Arkansas. So I am the founder and director of a rock climbing festival as well um, that's in Arkansas, and we've been going on for 17 years now. It's a very similar ethos. It's a five-day festival. Outside Magazine calls it the Burning Man of Rock Climbing. It's just a, a, a beautiful five days in the woods, uh, partying, having a good time, loving on each Like, it's it's a beautiful, amazing experience. And so I used to be into rock climbing, and then I, I moved into the cycling world, and I fell in love with riding a bike. And so over the years, I'd been thinking, okay, it'd be really cool to put on a, a cycling event. I think it'd be really cool. I'm passionate about it. So um, Lauren, my co-director of, of Rule of Three, her husband, Sam, Sam is the director of product at Allied Bicycles, Allied Cycle Works. And we ride a lot and we were out riding one day on some of the single track on gravel bikes um, in Bentonville. And we thought to ourselves, man, this this trail is super fun on these gravel bikes. It's super fun, right? Of course, we all love riding trail on gravel bikes, but we got we got to thinking, okay, it'd be really cool to put on this event where you have this. the The original idea was that you that it was it was an equal amount of single track gravel and and mountain bike trail, or I'm sorry, and, and pavement. 
And so it would be like a 33% mix, right? And that was our original idea. And it was kind of, you know, pandemic era, you know, and so we were, we were, we sat on, well, it was, this was before the pandemic, we kind of sat on it for a couple of years and then the pandemic hit and, uh, and then I'll never forget the reason why we decided to do it in 2021 was, uh, three or four months before Mid-South was to happen, Bobby canceled Mid-South. And I thought to myself, okay, if this is not going to be the year of big events, we could put on a, an event with 200 people and it'd just be local. Nobody's got to travel and we could get by with it. Nobody's going to get mad at us for putting on like a 200 person local, you know, rule of three type event. And so I was like, boom, I started the Instagram account, like, you know, free Instagram account. I, I, I filled out, I built our website in like, I don't know, like a day. And then we announced it, you know, and I was like, okay, we're going to, you know, we'll have 200 people. It'll be great. Small, local. This will be our, like our chance to like get a, you know, a couple hundred people there. And then we'll prove that this is a cool event and then we can go big, right? Big, big, whatever. And, uh, and by chance we sold like 700, you know, spots that year um, in 2021. And the rest is kind of history. Like, we put on that event, you know, I think Payson won that year, I think, if I remember correctly. So people showed up and, um, and you know, go figure. This type of, this type of uh, format's fun. In the zeitgeist and what would be referred to as successful events in gravel, there's generally two camps. You have the early adopters formed around the 2010 period, like Rebecca's Private Idaho, and you have the newcomers like Rule of Three, formulated somewhere between 2019 and the end of COVID. Like Rule of Three, the last best ride, started by Jess Sarah and her partner, Sam Borgman, is one of those newbies. The last best ride was like a, it was a COVID baby. <laughs> we escaped Southern California where we were living at the time and came to Whitefish where I was born and raised and grew up and spent some time here staying with my family and kind of exploring um, the gravel roads a little bit more. And to Sam's credit, he's really good at Strava routing. I'm more of a creature of habit and I'll just go do the same thing. And he, he got me out on some gravel roads that I'd never been on. And the, the previous uh, August, I had went to my first really big gravel event, Rooted Vermont, that Ted and Laura were putting on. And that event sort of put in my head that I wanted to make an evolution out of road racing and focus more on gravel. And I loved how that event sort of encapsulated the vibe of the community in a way that made it feel like it was about the community, but it was also about the larger cycling community in a way that just worked. You know what I mean? So it felt big, but it didn't feel too big. And I feel like Whitefish is ripe for an opportunity like that. So we kind of, we kind of, uh, <laughs> we got the courses first and then we started approaching the landowners, which included the Forest Service and everyone ended up being amazing to work with, but that was definitely a challenge. We have seven, seven different land permits. So for us, we said from the beginning, it needs to be a net positive for Whitefish 
This is a very small community that has become extremely popular, especially over COVID. Um, there's, as Sam will describe it, there's a lot of localism here where people are feeling like they want to be protective now because it's changing very quickly. I mean, we have a ski resort in a lake within five minutes of the front door of like any place that you live at here. So it's, it's a desirable place to be. More importantly, there is a connection to myself growing up here and um, growing up with really humble roots as a pretty low income kid and experiencing the efforts and support of different programs in this community that helped me play sports and more importantly, helped me go to college without having a ton of stress and debt. And I've had an idea of how I would be able to kind of turn that around and give it back into the community one day. And this event was a perfect way to create this really fun experience and then also create a scholarship program to provide back to the local high school women that I was hoping to help. Mm -hmm. So I am hoping that answers your question. Yeah. So Sam, I'm happy you're here because you have an interest, you're an interesting character in that you help promote this gravel race, but you have really still focused your own athletic efforts on the road, Mm -hmm. even in the face of the changing tide. You seem to be mostly a road cyclist. Yeah. How has that continued relevance in the road scene and priority to road events influenced the way you approach curating a gravel event? Um, Well, I would say that as far as my curation of the event goes, like Jess said, it was really just the route creation. And I think that's born more out of just the way that I train more than anything else. Um, With the road cycling, it's just around here in Montana. It's good, but it's mostly just like agricultural grid system or going to the Sun Road, which is amazing, but you can only do those rides so many times before, you know, you get a little bored of the routes. And so I use gravel almost exclusively during the summer when the roads are accessible as my means of training for the road. And so when Jess was pitching the idea of trying to create a gravel event, I had told her, well, there are tons of great roads around here. And I started showing her around and that's really, that's like my, my main contribution to the curation of the event. Jess is the brains and the logistics manager of everything. I just, as I joke, I lift stuff and then I put it somewhere else. That's usually just my, my role at the race. Um, you also made our website. Yeah. I, he's our tech, kinda. he's our um, unpaid tech intern. Yeah. Very amateur level <laughs> at that. Um, but really, I think for me, gravel and road, the way that they intermingle in my own cycling life is simply just gravel is the way that I decompress from what is usually kind of a quote unquote high octane travel schedule of crit racing, which is very short, intense, uh, punchy type of racing. I come back home to Montana and I can be out in the sticks in 10 minutes from our house and not see a single soul. And that's kind of how I recharge my batteries after a long trip away from home is just being able to get out in the woods and be away from urban environments, which is generally the selling point for most crit racing is that it is an urban center racing and it's accessible to the neighbors and uh, townspeople like to come see. Whereas I come home and 
I will sometimes go out on a ride and not see a single soul for five to six hours. Mm -hmm. And that's just perfect for me. Yeah. Yeah. So was that part of the reason why you've structured it as sort of a community ride and less of something that would be strictly viewed as a race? Your title is last best ride. It's not last best race. Um, well, it's actually, yeah. yeah, there's a interesting story. The, I, the term last best race was actually already a trademarked term when we were looking into it, <clears throat> but it ended up working out because like Jess was saying, the event as she designed it, she wanted it to be a net positive. And so when we thought of the last best ride, it actually did a better job, um, rhetorically cap cap or capturing what we wanted the event to be, which was you can either compete or you can complete, which I think is the selling point for most gravel events now. And why you see such a boom in the attraction to the discipline is just because simply finishing the event in and of itself can be something that people can mark as an accomplishment. Whereas for example, in crit racing, like most people don't go out into a crit just to finish the crit. You know, if they want to try and win it or they want to try and bump elbows and be in the mix and the finish. So it's a completely different, different goal mindset. And I think using the word ride, I don't know, I think yeah, it better I think captured. Just, it really has appealed to people and it's definitely helped locals feel like they can do this event. And we get that question a lot. Like, do I have to race it? And we do a start that's sort of staggered. Um, Penarello is our title sponsor. So we have like a Penarello full gas and then we have a bonfire and a campfire group. And we tell people in advance what those groups are like to sort of stage naturally. And because we're not a big event like Unbound where people line up and pretend that they're going to have a magic 200 extra watts every hour, they'll actually go in those groups and find new friends and then just be overwhelmed with the experience. Well, Rule of Three is built upon Burning Man and The Last Best Ride is built upon campfires. Another newcomer, Gravel Locos, is built upon something a little more nebulous. Here is race director Fabian. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows what Gravel Locos I just started it. I started working on the idea in 2019. So I figured in order to get the attention of, of riders and media and such, I had to do something, something very different. And, you know, when you're trying to compete against lifetime fitness and stuff like that, you really got to come up with something different. So my, so I, I hosted a, a free, a completely free event in 2021, free to the participants, uh, where, you know, we had SAG vehicles, uh, bunch of swag, uh, food and drinks and aid stations, aid stations with portable bathrooms, uh, you know, and a bunch of pros. So it's just big, huge event. Uh, we had 1200 people. We, we allowed 1200. So it, it sold out really quick, like within a few hours. So how did those conversations go with the riders? How did you sort of make this pitch of a unique thing. I, you know, I, I didn't, I don't have any context in the cycling world nor the uh, bike industry, but I just started messaging the riders that I like through uh, Instagram. And it was a pretty long message. What I was trying to do that I was trying to raise money for. I, I really wanted to bring attention to the needs that volunteer fire departments have nationwide. You know, these are folks that are fighting the same types of fires as well-funded city departments 
but yet their equipment is junk. It's hand-me-down. It's old. Uh, their trucks are, you know, 30, 40 years old. You know, they don't always start. So, you know, fire doesn't care whether, you know, you've got state-of-the-art equipment or, or you know, old hand-me-down stuff. It's And I, I just felt that, you know, there was just something wrong with that. That, you know, especially those of us who ride gravel, we're out in the middle of nowhere in these little, little towns, the gravel roads. Well, the fire rescue and fire departments out there are all volunteer based folks that have full-time jobs, but also then volunteer. Uh, and I just felt that, Hey, this is a good, good way to give back to these communities that we ride gravel on, uh, in, and it's to help fund their volunteer fire department. So it started with Heiko. And then I learned about the Pueblo Red Creek volunteer fire department. Red Creek doesn't even have indoor bathrooms. They don't have a toilet. They don't have a sink. They don't have a place to wash their hands. They don't have running water. Yet they're, you know, they're responsible for a hundred and something miles of, you know, of, of land that, that and they do fire and rescue. Same thing with Heiko, you know, they do fire and rescue and, and they, they needed a command fire truck. They didn't have one. Theirs broke down. Uh, so there's an incredible amount of need at these departments uh, that are all over the U.S. And they just don't, they don't get any funding. They're, they're, they're just donation based. So the goal was to the first gravel locos just host it and 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 uh, offer people stuff that they don't get at some of those big events. You know, you know, at, at Unbound you don't get SAG, you don't get age stations that are for everybody. You know, so we, the idea was let's do a big event and then offer everything that someone could potentially need to be successful. And I really wanted to attract people to gravel that that were a little hesitant, you know, it's not everybody can go out there and ride hundred, 150 miles unsupported, you know, without aid stations, without the help of SAG vehicles and folks out there patrolling, uh, you know, gravel, I always say gravel is great because you're out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, you hardly ever see a car or a house, but that's also what makes it dangerous. Should you get hurt, have a mechanic or anything, you, you really can't get help. Uh, Perfect example is Thomas Decker, a, a retired pro. He did Unbound uh, in 2021 for the first time. I was out there with him. Well, I wasn't out there, but I was waiting for him. And his uh, specialized seat broke. And he was out in middle of nowhere walking his bike until some farmer saw him, picked him up, and brought him to the nearest city. And then I got in my RV, went out there, and picked him up. Uh, you know, stuff like that tends to keep a lot of people from trying gravel, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, you know, not knowing that you don't have any aid stations and you don't have any help or SAG vehicles, you know, that can scare some folks away from trying gravel. So the whole idea of gravel locus is how do we make this, you know, as safe as possible and make it accessible to as many people that would otherwise not try it out because they're concerned about a breaking a bike breaking or a flat tire or, or running out of food or water and being told, Hey, there you're, you're on your own out there. There's, there are no aid stations. There's nothing. Uh, and I'm happy to see that a lot of more events are starting to implement aid stations and, and, and a lot of that, which I think helps the beginners and helps the people that don't feel very comfortable with, you know, being out there in the middle of nowhere, you know, without any kind of support. I mean, the whole self-support thing sounds great, uh, if you know what you're doing, if you got, you know, mechanical skills and all that other stuff, but you know, not everybody has all that gear. Not everybody has bikes that they can load up with a bunch of water bottles or, or a water pack or 
or all those things that you can run out of. Those barriers that Fabian mentioned can be things like experience, but they can also be things like gender. At Foco Fondo, Whitney Allison and Zach Allison really focus on creating an inclusive environment. And a lot of that comes down to Whitney's experience as a professional road racer and one of the top women in gravel. I think it's kind of tricky. Um, I think like back to my road career, there's always this push, like, how do you get more women to race? How do you get more women to race? How do you get more women to race? And it's just like this really difficult puzzle. And I do think that gravel has given people an opportunity to be more scalable, like whether they want to like go for a finish line, whether that's on a shorter route or the longest route at an event. Um, And then like kind of go from there if they want to go for a PR the next year or a longer route or maybe even try to like get an age group podium. Like I feel like that scalability is more accessible than there has been through like traditional road racing where you have to get licensure and results to get into a different category. And there's all these rules and sometimes you need teams. So I do think like that's really helpful. Um, I don't think that the puzzle is solved by any means. Um, I feel very lucky in that by having an event, I get to do my annual experiment every year of trying to attract more women. So like last year we set up childcare as an option. It is paid. Um, this year we had a community member donate some money so that we can offer a grant for people that maybe, um, are single parents or, you know, oftentimes women are the ones that get left at home if both people want to race um, with the kids. So trying to kind of like ease some of those barriers and then kind of see if we get a higher percentage. Um, But I mean, Foco Fondo has had a pretty high percentage of women historically. Last year, we were like 34% women, which is pretty decent, 2% non-binary and then the rest were men. So, you know, that's like 12 or 14% off of the normal population. But um, yeah, it's just always like a work in progress that's puzzling and fun and a challenge. Mm -hmm. Zach, how do you think as sort of the male component, um, how, what, what do you feel like the dialogue around women in cycling might be missing? from your end as someone who knows intimately what it's like to be a woman in cycling, but who's also not a woman in cycling. Yeah. I like the way you worded that. There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of trouble to be gotten into uh, with dudes just talking about how we think women feel about whatever. <laughs> but um, I like just speaking about the stats that I know of only from the racing perspective and at Foco Fondo. Right. So like, we have a huge women's turnout to Foco Fondo. And I think a lot of that is driven by having a female co-promoter, um, having things like childcare and just having the right language around us wanting you to show up and you feeling welcome. And if you don't feel welcome, tell us why. Um, but then we don't have as many women. And I would argue that most races don't in the actual racing portion of it. And we just launched the Colorado summer of gravel series, um, earlier this week and there we haven't checked today but as of today there were zero women signed up um so i think that there's a disconnect 
we're, we at Foco Fondo, we seem to be doing a good job, especially Whitney seems to be doing a good job at making women feel welcome and having them sign up and register, knowing that they're going to have a good time and feel welcome. And so I wish that that also translated to women feeling like they have a place to compete. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big differentiator in like the stats that I see. And, and I don't know how women feel or why, obviously, or I would like hope I could change that in some way. But I want to see more women racing this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think you also have to break down like hundreds and thousands of years of culture, too. And that just doesn't happen in 60 years. Like, it's just not realistic. I think it is happening, though, like. You could just see like the higher women's participation. You can see in like language and people like Stacey Sims that have taught women that like being strong is way more important than being small. Like your ideal body type is not going to be the same as another competitor's body type and just changing a lot of those stereotypes that a lot of us grew up with. Women's participation in events has been something that almost every race director I've talked to has mentioned as a priority, but for most of them, it's something that they are trying to superimpose after the fact, just because of the nature of supply and demand with gravel cycling. One event that really tried to make it a fundamental part of the start is the Appalachian Journey here in Floyd, Virginia. The Appalachian Journey just happened this past weekend and is a race that requires everyone to ride with a friend. It's a duo race similar to the Cape Epic. Here is Emily Harefield and Gordon Wadsworth to talk a little bit more about why they chose the duo category. Yeah, you know, Gordon and I have done a lot of racing and mostly Gordon. I've tagged along to a lot and have been kind of in the backseat, like you said, like he's he's the one with the cycling accolades and the national championships and the, you know, the really big successes on the bike. And I'm just kind of you know, I participate and I do the best that I can and I show up, but the, the wins that I have had the most, um, satisfaction and like gratitude for have been the ones that we have done together and had this shared experience. Um, you know, when we go and do solo races together, even though it's the same event, we finish and I feel very much like he had his own experience. I had my own Mm -hmm. experience and they're not really, a collaborative thing for us. And so when we're able to go do um, our first event, I think uh, as a team in a stage race where we were together the whole time was Pisgah stage Mm, race. And I remember walking away from that and we didn't win. Um, We did well, but we didn't win. But I remember walking away from that thinking like, I feel so fulfilled and so connected to both my life partner, but also my, my team partner um, from this experience and being able to have shared every single moment um, feeling like we truly were better as a team than we were separate. And so that was really important to me. It was such a fulfilling um, experience that, that's all I wanted to do when we did these stage races. Like I've done stage races by myself. Mm -hmm. I've raced big events by myself and walking away from it. I never had that sense of accomplishment or um, community as I did racing with Gordon. And so when we looked at the, you know, the gravel cycling community and the events that were being put on and even the mountain bike events that were being put on, the U S does not have that many duo 
partner uh, races. And so we thought, why not make this something that we feel really passionate about mm-hmm. in our real life as partners in life, but also that we feel passionate about in our play life, which is on bikes. Um, and feeling that sense of like, I can succeed with Gordon. I want it to pass along to other people too. Like you can succeed with other people and do really well in a venue that might otherwise be very intimidating. Mm-hmm. It, it feels very doable and like something that I can succeed at when I do it with Gordon and with other, I've had other very successful partners too um, that I've raced overseas with, not just Gordon, but it, it seems like it's a little bit, a smaller bite when you do it with somebody else. Yeah. Um, and that's important to people like me who don't do this full time. Um, to make it very succeedable, you know, you can, you can succeed and you can be, um, you can be pretty dang good at it too. Like with somebody else that may be able to shepherd you along that through that process. How do you think having the duo element be so central to the identity has shaped the way you think about the ethos of the event and the course? Does that influence it at all? The course, not so much, though it allow it. I think that it allows people to tackle a pretty hard course. I mean, the long doggy, our longest route at the journey is pretty dang tough. I mean, Carrie Werner and Stephen um, Hyde did it in, not Stephen Hyde, Stephen Vogel did it in um, like seven and a half hours. Like that's a Shenandoah mountain bike 100 kind of time. Like that's not a fast race. I think it allows people to kind of bite off uh, something pretty big. Um, I think it it allows us as event promoters, producers, and the people whose name is is on their insurance policy when they ride, um, it allows us a little bit of element of safety, right? Your your navigation is handled by two people. Your um, any crashes or other issues are handled by two people. It's, I mean, the same foundational reason that mountain bike stage races use a partner format, which is safety, um, is at play at ours, right? So we can kind of throw them off the deep end a little bit, um, because we know that they're, they're going to have more resources than, than just individuals and really more resources than just one plus one, like one plus one in this case doesn't equal two, it equals a whole lot more than that. Um, and I think that that's, that's important. You know, the duo format for us, it's something that we obviously we felt we feel very strongly about um, so much that we, we made this event only that. And we do get some grumpies that just, uh, you know, they'll email and say, well, that's I don't believe in that. So I'm not coming up. And it's like, OK, <laughs> thank you for your contribution. Um, you know, but it is it is something that I think is really important to to our world right now. And so when we were kind of like, projecting this bike race in Floyd County in our home, it was like, um, why don't we try this? Like we took, oh, we took all these other things that we love and we've experienced that added so much to the experience. And we sort of tried to apply them in, in our own little space and not all of it fit or it was too heavy handed or it didn't quite work out, but we kept hitting that partner format and being like, maybe that's really worth trying. Um, because I think that, I think that it, it, asks people to think more deeply of them uh, of, than of just themselves. It asks them to act of, about more than just themselves. And cycling can tend to be such a selfish sport. And even, even at its best, right, it, it, it is by its nature, right? And I, I love and I hate that. I love those deep solo moments. But I also, to Emily's point, when we've raced together, when I've raced with other people, 
I find that I am the person I like more. I'm, I'm acting better and smarter and more caring about others around me when I'm acting on behalf of this team, you know, whether that's racing with Emily or with my race partner, Sonia Looney, who I've raced with a bunch, um, I, or other, or Thomas Turner, other yeah, folks. You know? I, I think it's also really important. And I thought about this a lot. I think it's really important for women to have that opportunity yeah. because racing can be a very male dominated venue and it can be very intimidating. You know, I've, like I've said, I've, we've raced a lot internationally and you go to these events and there's either not that very, there's not many women or, um, you know, it's in another country where it's very male dominated and can be quite aggressive racing with all of these, these other men. And so when you have somebody there with you, who, you know, is gonna like go to bat for you and make a pass and make the line and help you out in that situation, it feels like a much safer space to race as a female. And Mm -hmm. I felt that very much with Gordon and with other partners, Scott Rosinko that I've raced with before and having that kind of buffer to be like, okay, I can, I have safe wheel to follow. I have safe space. Like they're going to throw elbow if I need it or, you know, whatever the case may be. We, Last year, we saw a lot of women show up, both with um, co-ed mixed partners, with with duo females, with, um, you know, juniors. And that was really cool to see mm-hmm. because you see all these big races and there are not that many women there. Yeah, it's 15%, 10% women. And so to be able to say, like, you know, there's a, a solid partner that maybe a new female racer can follow, yeah. that's that's a really amazing place to be. And we saw that happen a lot last year Yeah, where they might not otherwise race because it was too intimidating. Right. That was my, my follow-up question was what are the, the challenges associated with women? Because on one hand you have the support when you have a fellow rider, but on the other with that smaller base of female riders and with sometimes from in my experience, a larger range of talent ability, it seems like it's a challenge. What are ways in which you are trying to create the environment that's accessible for women to partner with men, to partner with other women and to embrace that difference in ability that might be present in those relationships? I think, um, I can answer kind of from an organizational standpoint. Um, one is uh, is pricing, pricing, and all of those sort of nuts and bolts things about the event, right? We create an event that has low barriers to entry, right? There's no, uh, you know, there's no sanctioning fee, there's no licensing, there's no test you got to pass, there's no, there's no lottery, there's no lottery, <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's none of that. The other is, is, is keep it affordable. Um, especially for the shorter distances, because you mentioned that that breadth of skill level or fitness keeps a lot of people from pinning a number plate. And we have a category that's just experience only. Um, and then that allows e-bike riders to, to participate. Um, and we have under 18 categories that are, uh, you know, a little bit cheaper than the regular categories, but our, our 36 mile category, which gets, you know, everything the other categories get, um, 
is, is, you know, 45 bucks. Like it's a matter of trying to keep this thing as affordable as absolutely possible. And because that's just one less barrier. And even the 110 is less than a dollar a mile. So it subsidizes those shorter distances, but everything like that, like anytime we see a barrier, we try and reduce it as much as we can to, to getting female participation, junior participation, um, you know, and to getting to, to making sure that it's approachable because, you know, one of those foundations of, of our event is that people, people like me are boring, right? <laughs> like your average white guy that's done bikes for 20 years has the same story, no matter who they are. I want to hear, like, I want to hang out at the campfire and hear somebody else's story, like learn about them and understand um, th- their principles and goals and where they're coming from and hear their funny, hilarious stories um, and have them be really different. Now that we have introduced all the characters, why don't we return to Rebecca Rush to guide us through the rest of the conversation? We have a shared connection. Obviously, there's there's many years of adventures that you have on me in terms of your resume, but I grew up in Sun Valley, Idaho. Some For some serendipitous reason, I ended up in the Valley. And I remember in 2009 or 2010, one of my first ever bike events, I was a cross-country skier because cross-country and downhill programs, those dominate what people do in the Valley. But there still are that seven months out of the year where there's no snow on the ground where people need things to do. And I remember it was one of those summers and um, there was the Trail Creek Hill Climb. This is, I think it's 2009 and I was nine and I had a hand-me-down Le Mans road bike from I think Max Durchy, who was two time who was two-time junior national champion. It was like one of this very this is a situation that was just very Sun Valley, Idaho, right? Um but there was the Trail Creek Hill Climb and there was about 300 people signed up. And I was probably one of the youngest. Um, and everyone had road bikes and mountain bikes. And there was this energy that I remember that was different than ski energy. It was different than what I had experienced in other sports. And it was that first experience I had with cycling. Now, I've gone on to race on the road and do events in all all kinds of different places. but that experience stuck with me and riding with a ton of other people up trail Creek was something that guided me on the path I am today. So looking at private Idaho, I've always felt like it's in a community that's really going to buy into an experience like this. It's not uh Emporia, Kansas, but Sun Valley, Idaho is not also a Vail, Colorado or an Aspen. It is something that is unique in its feel and its culture. When you were trying to set up the event, what were the conversations like with community members in this town? And was it something that you felt like could be very successful in that climate? Well, I had no, like you said, at the time in 2013, there weren't gravel bikes. The shops weren't carrying gravel tires. There wasn't specific equipment. And so, you know, when I went to the community with this idea, there was definitely kind of a like, what? you want people to ride into Copper Basin, you know, over Trail Creek into Copper Basin. You got, you know, three land management jurisdictions that you've got to like, do you really want to do this? And I think initially I got the permits and things because I think people were like, well, okay, I don't really think anyone's going to show up. So I think the community was supportive, but also they didn't 
they didn't really get it because it was, you know, a, kind of at the forefront of, of what is now the fastest growing segment of cycling. And so I think because I live in the community and I have a reputation, people are like, oh, okay. Um, and that first year, you know, there was a massive fire. And so we put it all together, got sponsors. And I was lucky I was able to sort of get the event launched kind of on my reputation as an athlete. And so, you know, just sort of my exposure allowed me to bring in partners and bring in sponsors and bring in locals um, to, to get things going. Um, I'm also a firefighter. So we had a massive fire and town was evacuated, you know, before the first private Idaho. And I'm just like, what do I do? Do I give the money back? I don't, I don't know what to do. And like, luckily, you know, and I was working 17 hour days on the fire and still just like putting on a first year event. And the community really came together. My cycling community friends and the people who just showed up, they're like, we'll come help. And you know, the, the fire cleared just enough and, and wagon days and, and private Idaho was the first event back after the whole town had been evacuated. And it was that community spirit. It's almost like, you know, Phoenix rising from the ashes. And the fact that I was a firefighter, a local, you know, professional athlete, like I was so proud to bring, like there was 145 people that came. A bunch of people didn't come because of the fire. I think we had 300 sign up, but 145 people came and rode. And it was so special because like you said, um, it was a very bonded community of the locals being grateful that I was putting on an event, the restaurants being happy that people were coming back and our town was still standing. And then new people who were just like, whoa, this place is really special. And when people ask me, you know, what's so special about it? It's like, just come, you'll feel it. You know, you'll feel it like you did on Trail Creek just come. And it's so rare that we get into such a remote atmosphere, but also have a small town community. Um, and so, yeah, that first year, but I never thought it was going to launch into being, you know, uh, a world-class event with 1500 people that come. It's now five days long instead of one day, we've got music and expos. And so I didn't see that vision. I didn't have that long-term vision. The same as me as an athlete. I just have done things that felt like the right thing to do that I felt passionate about. And it has built and become like the largest community event, the largest sporting event in the community, as far as economic impact and the amount of people that come. And I'm really proud of that because it's, you know, it's kind of like the Boulder mountain tour, which is a, you know, 50 year old ski race in the Valley. It's, you know, it's the summer version of that, that the community is, is embracing. And it's pretty cool. It's a lot bigger than me now. We've had this experience in gravel that it feels like things are just growing. And yet recently we've seen a shift in the larger industry, the outdoor industry as a whole, to a more restrictive and kind of shrinking almost uh, economic model. You see layoffs happening. You see uh, publications going away. I know Warren Miller Films is something that is big for Sun Valley. They've been using Sun Valley locations forever, and they just decided to cut filming 
things that are happening now. They're using archival photo footage for the most recent video. And that's a that's a 50 year project. So outside of gravel, you're seeing a restrictive sort of policy put in place. And how do you feel about this sensation that gravel is on a path of unmitigated growth? And how are what what are ways in which you're trying to look at it in a more sustainable manner now that you might see coming down the pike a flattening of that growth curve? Yeah, super good question. And I'm going to go back to evolution. Our world is in a vastly rapidly changing um, scenario due to the pandemic where people are, you know, every, everything is changing at a really rapid pace. So what that means to me is, you know, is that I need to be in touch with with what people want and what people are inspired by. So the same reason I launched the event 13 years ago, you know, to give back to my community and help people explore, um, is that still why people are coming to events? You know, and I, every year I really, I go out on the race course and I really try to experience it. I talk to people um, to keep my finger on the pulse. And what I see an evolution that's happening is yes, people are being a little bit more selective with where they can travel and what they can afford to go to. Um, and, but I also am seeing that people are desperately wanting to embrace community and they want to be together in a group. And whether it's, you know, a training program digitally online, because we've learned we can connect online. And so, you know, I have RPI base camp, which is an eight week training program to help people like get ready and form their community before they even get here. And so I'm, again, I'm trying to look at what would I want as an athlete if I'm like, I can only go to one event a year and it's a really big deal for me to travel to Sun Valley. I want to make the best of it. And so I'm trying to add other value things more than just come to a bike race, you know, and come do this cool event. Yes. It needs to be a great course. Yes. It needs to be in an awesome place, whatever. But I think just as sponsors and partners are looking for athletes now to be a lot more than just get on a podium, they're looking for us to be filmmakers and writers and content creators and, you know, online personalities and have a podcast in addition to winning races and being on top of the podium. And I think the same demand is happening with races is, you know, it's got to be a multifaceted thing. It's no longer just pull up in your car, do a gra- do a race, get back in your car and go home. People want a real complete experience. And so I really try to keep my finger on the pulse of, you know, how do I provide a really quality experience that's worth the money and and that people go away changed. They come away different so that it's more than a bike race. And I think about that a lot. And you're right, not everyone's going to survive. I also think about I'm an independently owned event you know, and now there's, there's some big corporately owned events that are, you know, making headway and, and how do I compete as an individual? And I go back to my athletic career because this is everything I've learned. I've learned on the trail and, you know, I've always been a solo athlete and showed up against, you know, better funded teams or, you know, bigger groups of people. And I just had to ride faster. I just had to be better. I just had to train harder. 
And so as an independent event owner, I think about that. That's how I operated as an independent athlete. And so it's kind of the same. If my event is awesome, you know, that's all I can do. I can't really control what the economy's doing. I can't control what other corporate entities are doing, but you're right. It's getting a little harder. You know, you can't just throw a race on the map and call it good. It's got to be a really quality event. So I'm, I'm grateful that I've been here. I've got a footprint, you know, this is year number 11. Um, I think it'd be really hard to start up a new event now, you know, with such a full calendar and hopefully what happens is the good stuff rises to the top and, and I think in five years from now, it's all going to look a lot different. Um, Gravel cycling has been growing for years. The model has encouraged growth. It has encouraged new events to come in. It has really been a period of expansion. Yet the rest of the bike industry is not expanding. The rest of the bike industry is restricting as we look towards an uncertain economic future. So my question to a lot of these race directors was, what does that mean for gravel? What can the expectations of that continued growth be? And where are the limitations? Of all the race directors, you'd expect to answer that question with pessimism. One I did not fully expect was Bobby Wintle from Mid-South. Bobby is someone we all know of great enthusiasm, but on the note of growth and on the note of the sustainability of the events in the future, he had a little bit more of a somber perspective. The industry at large, like I don't, I'm not, I'm not super business savvy by any means, but I obviously it seems very simple to me that things just went absolutely crazy. Everything was broken as far as the entire supply chain for the entire world, for every industry. And now we're on the backside of that. And, and yeah, everyone's heavy on inventory at not only bike shops, but uh, yeah, distribution centers, big brands. And so now we're starting to see the repercussions of that. And we're starting to, we're just seeing the repercussions of people's lives hundred percent going back to normal. Like I'm back at work. I, I, I'm, tried working at home. I don't love it. I'm not riding my trainer, my bike, my Peloton, my Wahoo. Like I I'm back to normal. I'm back to going to the bar and like, I'm unhealthy and I'm not feeling good. You know what I mean? Like all, every factor plays into what's going on right now, as far as like participation numbers at events and, and who's riding bikes and who's not. And honestly, man, coming out of the pandemic, I thought if we could retain like 5%, 5% of new ridership of new owners of bikes, then we could potentially have helped create like a completely new space for not only, not only like recreational riders, but like uh, people doing commuting. And, you know, I, I thought for the smallest moment, I thought maybe we could see a somewhat of a revolutionary change in cycling as a part of your everyday life in the U S for the first time. But now I, I honestly don't believe that at all. Mm. I think that, everything is the same and maybe it's worse. Yeah, that that is, I think, the reality. But on the other hand, your event has received more media attention every year. It seemed to attract different important companies and important voices. And you're doing it in Stillwater, Oklahoma. So I know. how has this, how, is, how have you tried to, to balance the health of the event as a local thing 
and the health of the event as a national sporting thing? Man, I don't, I don't even know. I don't know because the moment that the race shuts off, I'm, uh, I kind of go blank and end up back at the bike shop most of the time trying to help with things there because we own a bike shop. Also, we don't just run the event like the bike shop came first. And the, over the years, over the last couple of years, especially like my time at the shop has gotten less and less and less and less just because there are more demands on consultation or being at a, uh, you know, speaking at an event or making sure that our event is going to run. And it does take a, three of us full time, f- four of us full time, almost all year. And honestly, like, I think, dude, I've just tried to not get ahead of myself in the national scheme of things and continually remind myself that what made this thing good in the first place was the uniqueness and of our roads, uniqueness of our roads, uniqueness of our downtown, of our community, and just how like bringing people here to experience what we have access to all the time is, is the, is the key is the core. And it's like, Oh, if we get X sponsor and we have the X amount of money, we have X amount of expectation and we got to do this and do this and oh look what they're doing look what they're doing yes we all rip each other off yes there's a there's a there's like a formula and a rubric for how to do these events and you can see it plain and clear as day but honestly like it takes it takes way more work than people would ever imagine and if we lost sight of like how this local community has really been the 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 entire foundation for why this thing has been successful. Like I, I feel like it would change the vibe hundred percent. When people come here, they feel like they're being welcomed into town. It doesn't feel like the event is just happening in this place because it's not just happening in this place. It's happening literally I'm pointing because my office is above uh, summit, which is right across the street from district. But I mean, it's, it's basically our, you're in our living room, you know, and I don't want that to change. I, I, I didn't if, I did not create this event to grow it to a certain point to make it worth a certain amount of money. If you look at my PL, this thing is not profitable from like a real standpoint. We're spending all the money. Um, we're trying to have the most fun we possibly can. And so like this isn't about another step, right? Like this isn't about being a monument of gravel that we somehow got voted into we, we weren't ever trying for a thing we were just doing it because this is what we would like to see at a at an event or at a party if we were going to go to one and so like that's why we have the beer can release party on thursday night the after party at stargazer out in the middle of nowhere um on thursday night until one two in the morning and then friday morning we're back up and we got the 50k we added running to the event before any of the gravel events we're talking about running because our local community asked us for it. So we were like, cool, let's do a 50 K. That sounds insane. And there, some of them were like, Oh, that's not even long at all for the ultra community. That's actually really short. <laughs> so yeah, man, like as it's gone, we've just kind of pivoted and moved and changed to take care of our local ethos and our local vibe. And honestly, man, I didn't go out like searching for big sponsors. I've only really pitched to somebody a couple times. Everything else has been like pretty natural. Hey, we really love what you're doing and we want to be a part of it. And like, how can this work? So it's, it's been like pulling teeth for me to come up with a sponsorship 
like package and like levels. And I, I, I just say to all the sponsors and they'll tell you this for sure. Like, what does this mean to you? And like, we, we gotta, gotta make up like a base amount of money of what it's worth. Cause we have an operating budget and we got to do that and we need to give a return on investment. But like, it was never about, it was never about just making this thing polished and shiny. Cause it's not, man, the mid South is wild and it's a mess sometimes. Yet not everyone I talked to had the same pessimism. Here is Andy and Zach Allison talking about their own perceptions of the growth in gravel. I think there is. Um, I think if you talk to people in the know in the industry, they're seeing uh, a lot of growth in that area. It's still much smaller than mountain bike, obviously. Um, and it may always be. But what you're finding is I think you're finding a lot of people who maybe uh, – for whatever reason, aren't interested in mountain biking or, you know, let's be honest, uh, gravel riding is much more accessible than mountain biking. Um, you know, it's, it's arguably safer, I guess, <laughs> but it, it also, in my mind, gravel, uh, evokes this sense of adventure. Um, a lot of folks who live in urban environments, they desire to get out onto these urban country roads and ride. It feels good, you know? Um, so I believe there is a, a lot of potential in this realm. Um, and I think it'll continue to grow. I mean, honestly, what do I know? But that's, that's kind of my, my, uh, my thoughts is that it's, it's unlimited potential. Um, and, you know, I think there's, Gravel isn't this interesting, like, I guess, crossroads, if you want to call it. It could go a lot of different directions. Um, it could go the way of, you know, official UCI. It could, you know, maybe there's this return to grassroots events like ours. Um, uh, I don't know. I think the Grand Prix has been amazing. I was extremely uh, skeptical when the Grand Prix was announced. But I tell you what, as a fan, I enjoyed watching it all year long. I loved everything about it. Um, so I, I just think that there's a place for all of these events in the grand scheme of the thing. You know, let us be the grimy, grungy rule of three. And then SBT can be the beautiful UCI finish line, gorgeous finishing truss. There's something for everyone. You know, I think it's great. Uh, I'm going to lead off with that. I'm not that old. <laughs> so like, I wouldn't, I don't think that I've lived through, a, like for sure a bust, you know, a boom bust cycle, you know, economically in the cycling like space. So I, I, I don't think a lot of people compare it to when mountain biking like happened, I guess in the world. Um, and I wasn't around for the beginning of that either. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely unknown i think i do think that things are there's a market correction in the past like few months from a lot of brands making a ton of money during the pandemic and like hiring people to you know move product and money around and so i i don't know i think things are shrinking a little bit more than they should acutely like with all the you know layoffs right now um but I think there's still a few years of gravel and gravel product development from brands that are late or brands that have new developments to be made. Um, and even road bikes have changed a ton in the last three years. So you can say that like the road racing scene is, you know, 
I would say the racing scene isn't doing very well, but the general consumer side is doing better than ever, right? So you can look at it as like, are you talking about, you know, races or, you know, USAC getting into the gravel scene, which is sort of happening right now too, and UCI. So yeah, basically I think it's impossible to say, um, to pinpoint a peak of gravel, but I don't, I definitely don't think we've hit it yet. Yeah, I don't think like sales, like the frenzy that there was at the beginning of the pandemic necessarily are going to continue to exist or reemerge. But I don't think that gravel is over anywhere near its peak. Like you look at the longevity of mountain biking or road riding and like those were decades long. And I don't really see a big substitution coming into play either yet. I mean, I think e-biking is maybe an opportunity and clearly there's been a huge growth in like youth cycling. Um, but I mean, everything just shifts. It's not, not a big deal. <laughs> like it's normal. And gravel's changed stuff and we can't go back, right? Like we're on the Envy Melee road bikes and they fit 33s and they aren't like an arrow compromise to, you know, a previous bike that fits 28 mil tires tops. So I think that there's a lot of new products that are going to come about and brands are still going to have a lot of money and a lot of skin in the game to, you know, develop new products and um, keep pushing the market in like the way of better bikes for everyone. For those newbie races, the challenge might not be existential growth of cycling, but it might be a question of supply and demand. Where is there a supply for people looking to race? What is the demand in the area and in the calendar? And how can they manage the distribution of good events throughout the year and throughout the country? So calendar considerations are very important. Here are some of those newbie races talking about how they fit their calendars together. It's becoming a little bit more tricky. And so we we are dealing with um, a small town that is overrun in the summer and the city and the police department, there's a lot going on in July. So we were basically told July is never going to work. And it's true because even finding accommodation here is nearly impossible. Um, and there's just too many people. June doesn't work because you can't even ride our long course in June. There's still too much snow. So then that pushes us into August, which traditionally, if we're going to have a fire season, it's going to be there. And so we we looked at late August to, to be after big events like Leadville and SBT and landed on the same date as Gravel Worlds. And that super bummed me out because Jason's such a great guy and they had their mission this year to get 50% women to the event or excuse me. In the, in the last year, and we talked on the phone for like over two hours um, when, when I ha had to make the call and he understood. We decided like geographically that helps people make the decision and it just, it is the way that it is. Um, unfortunately, I think SBT is sort of dealing with something similar with a really busy summer crowd. And so they're moving their date back. And luckily, Jason and I both heard about that th through other people, and we were able to separate our dates for this year. So he's moving to after SBT, and we're moving up in the calendar. 
Um, I think it also took us a couple years to show the city and the police department like that we can do this responsibly. So having an early August date, they they said, all right, let's do this. Like, it's going to be a good thing. It's all, So it's almost like you have to negotiate with the town as much as you would have to negotiate with other race promoters. Yeah. And it, I think for a good reason, too. Um, but yeah. And with Jason, he's just so easy. To, he he wants to be part of the conversation. And I admire that he listens. He reaches out to all the female race directors and other people and he listens. So I think that's really important for moving forward and kind of sharing the space together. Here's Fabiana from Gravel Locos and Andy from Rule of Three. Mm-hmm. How was it to enter into the calendar, enter into the race schedule when you have a lot of events kind of vying for key times, key dates, key riders. How is it navigating that sort of politicking process? You know, it's it's a little it's a little tricky. I, I wanted Heiko to be an event that was before Unbound uh, because the, the terrain in Texas and Heiko, the, the weather, the terrain, the elevation is very similar to the Unbound courses. So I wanted to have something that was sort of like a last opportunity to test your legs against the best so it's like this last big training event this last big training race uh and i also wanted to make sure that i didn't do an event when there was going to be another one you know a couple hours away or 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 in the next town or something like that uh you can't i also wanted to stay away from all the big events so i don't want to have an event when mid-south is having an event i just felt that that's not cool or when you know one of the big other events are taking place, the BWRs. Uh, so for me, that two weeks, that two week period before Unbound is perfect because it gives you know, especially the pros that we have a lot of pros that follow and tend and support us, and they want two weeks to recover. Now they, they and they don't want to do 200 miles two weeks before Unbound. So we do 155 miles. It's over 8,000 feet of climbing. The weather is very similar. The elevation is very similar. And it's a great race to get you ready for Unbound. Uh, so that's why we chose the 150, 155 miles, uh, that much elevation gain, the weather, the, the area. Uh, and then there's really, uh, when I started Gravel Locos, the, the first year, it was two weeks before Unbound, and it was perfect for all the Europeans that came. The second year, I did it three weeks before Unbound, and I lost a lot of international folks because they can't take three weeks off. You know, they, they can take two weeks off, and they can come race Heiko uh, and recover for a couple of weeks, race Unbound, and go home on Sunday. But when I made it three weeks before, that was not a good idea. And I got a lot of, you know, a lot of the riders, man, I, I, we just can't go. It's just too, many, too much time to take off. Uh, and then also the date is – it's dictated by the city where you are. So for Heiko, uh, you know, that two or three week period works. Uh, and that's where we picked that. The one in Pueblo, I picked that weekend because the week after there's an event by Lifetime, the Rad Dirt. Uh, so that's why I, I didn't want to have it the same weekend. So I picked it the week before. Uh, I did the same thing for 2023, and unfortunately, last month they called me, Lifetime called me, that they were going to move their event to our date. And I was like, no, why would you do that, you know? 
because the towns are 45 minutes apart. So, you know, they pretty much did what I've always avoided doing. Uh, and there's just not, I mean, I get it. They're a corporate event. They're, they're a corporation. They're going to have to do whatever they want to do and whatever they think is best for them. But now to have two events on the same weekend, 45 minutes apart, it's just dumb, you know, in my opinion. And it's unfortunate, but there's not a whole lot that I can do about it. You know, it's, we, uh, we made sure to put our date away from theirs and then they decided to move theirs to our date. And I get it, you know, our gravel, UCI gravel worlds takes place the weekend that they normally have their event. So, you know, I, I doubt Lifetime Fitness wants to piss off the UCI. So now their event is 45 minutes away from my event all on the same day. So that's definitely going to be a problem. The, the short answer is it doesn't bother me at all. Um, uh, so I think our first year, our first year in 2021, Gravel Locos was on the same weekend. And uh, and they sold out. We sold out. I, I Personally, I think there's plenty of room. I don't, I don't have a problem with it at all. And then last year, Gravel Locos changed their date, and we kept the same date. And, uh, and but, but Stetna did his pay dirt that weekend, and uh, and I know Stetna. We text back and forth all the time, and but I don't care. I mean, I yes, maybe the maybe the calendar is crowded uh, or crowding. But I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial here. But if uh, if no pros come to rule of three, I don't care. It, they're not the people that make the event. I'm sorry. It, it, you talk to them in person, they'll tell you the same thing. You know, it's the people who are bringing up the back end of the pack that are paying entry fees that make events. Um, so if the pros want to come to rule of three, that's amazing. I love that. I think it's great. A pointy end is awesome. But if they don't, we'll still sell out 1,500 spots to people that we care more about anyways. I love all these people. I, I'm trying to be you know fair here. But like if everyone goes to Stetna's Pay Dirt and Locos, that's okay. I'm not going to be mad about it. We're still going to have an amazing time, dude. <laughs> you know. So uh, I, for me, I don't care. There could be 10 events on the same weekend as Rule of Three. And we're not changing our date. We're keeping it forever. So um, it's the best time of the year for us in Mittenville to do it. And uh, and if this decision kind of hurts the event, we'll still have plenty of people come that, that want to do this route at that time of year. They want to come to Mittenville. Um, but I think, I, I honestly, in the end, I think there's enough participants to go around. I really do. You know, Stetton will get that West Coast, you know, uh, crowd. And uh, and then we can, us and Gravel Locos can split the rest. I think it's okay. I don't mind at all. Let's go back to Rebecca. Talking with all the race directors I have, it's really shown to me what the priorities of those people are and how they've sort of had to come to grips with balancing that with also managing professional fields. It's something that's very unique to gravel cycling, especially as it evolves. Um, and it's part of what kind of inspired me to go on this little investigation, because I feel like 
the conversations in gravel, especially the ones that get picked up in places like Velo News and Cycling News, are situations where you have professionals, oftentimes men, who are sort of looking at the sport from their particular perspective and sounding off in a way that is true to them and I don't think can be completely discounted, but seems to take a very specific look at it from a very specific set of interests. As someone who's lived in that elite athletics world and also lived in the world of being a event promoter, what are your feelings when it comes to things like that, when it comes to discussions about aid stations and about starting order and about aero bars? How do you deal with that? And how do you reflect on that binary of the elite athletes feel this way, but as an event promoter, I know I have to, I have to promote and I have to represent. Yeah. I mean, I'm in a unique position because I come from the, I come from the elite athlete world. And so I, I understand those conversations in wanting a fair playing field. And they're really all revolving around wanting a fair playing field. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've won unbound, you know, every distance multiple times, um, gravel hall of fame. I've won a lot of, I've won a lot of events and, and races on, on gravel, mountain bike, you know, skiing. So I understand the conversations of wanting to have a fair event for the elite athletes. However, um, with 1500 people on the line, maybe, maybe 30 to 50 of them at the most are, are the elite level athletes. And so if the conversation is only, for the pointy end of the race, like how is their experience, then you're neglecting the other 95% of the participants. The beautiful thing about endurance sports, you know, skiing, running, biking, is that we are on the same playing field, elites and um, amateurs, we're on the same playing field. And that's really cool because you get to see your heroes and you get to see the times that they're throwing down. You get to ride the same hill. So I think that's important. I think the slippery slope we're in with gravel right now is that it's getting more professional, but we're still having, we still have everybody on the same playing field. You know, imagine in basketball, if, you know, for the final four, you allowed a bunch of amateurs on the court and everybody was taking free throws at the same time, it'd be total chaos. And so we're at this point where how do we keep the, the community awesome exploratory feel of gravel, but also provide a fair playing field for the elite riders. And I don't have the answer. I think about it a lot because I want everyone to have a good experience from the first to the last person. Um, you know, we hear a lot about the front end of the race, but that's, that's not the most important thing. Because if you think all these road athletes that are coming over from road racing, what do they like about gravel? They like that it's not regulated. They like that it's fun. They like that, you know, um, it is kind of every race is totally different. There's not this really, you know, one World Cup set of rules. And so if you think about why people came in the first place, elites and amateurs, you know, protecting that's pretty important because otherwise you just create road racing on a dirt surface. And so I think it's important to look at 
what's cool, kind of back to that original question of that first race I did, it had like the cool things about mountain biking and some of the cool things about road racing, which is more people could come. So how do you maintain that? And what I do as an event promoter, and this is, this is what's cool about gravel is that each event can have its own personality. And if you want more of a road race, you want more of this style, you can choose that event. If you want a little more adventure, a little more mountain bikey style, you know, you can come to private Idaho. And I, I try to let the course dictate the fairness. So, you know, for example, our course, we do a 1500 foot climb right out of the gate. And so what that does is it really separates the field. It, it kind of gets people where they should be. Um, and so that, that helps just naturally, um, get the elite riders with their pack and the amateurs with their pack. I also implement, you know, some, some pretty technical sections of the course towards the end, like mile 80. I added this in a few years ago, this section called El Diablito, where I get people off the main really smooth road and they go on to a double track. That's basically a mountain bike you know, about five miles that feels real mountain bikey. And the whole reason I put that in was to break up the Peloton 20 miles from the finish to allow, you know, a little more spice in the race. And the roadies hate that part. Mountain bikers love it. But what it does is it, it adds a challenge that the racer then has to, has to come to, and it makes it less like road racing. So I'm trying not to implement a bunch of rules. I'm trying to let the course actually dictate how the racing style happens. That's harder in places like Kansas or Ohio. Um, But I do think to your point, it's important to listen and cater to the experience of everyone, if that's possible, not just cater to the elites. But I get it because I was making my career racing bikes too. And so you want a fair race. And I think that that's the most important, but each race can choose. The whole story is a lot bigger than aero bars or, you know, are you doing water Mm. bottle hand ups or not? You know, like it's a lot bigger than that. And it's, it's more important. The discussion is more important and deeper than just what's happening at the elite end. And that seems to take the front seat a lot. And so I'm grateful you're having this conversation because there's tons of people riding gravel bikes, which is awesome. And we want them to have fun and push themselves and it shouldn't all just be like complaining on the internet about it. It's, it's really hard to do journalism in this climate. And I'm coming from a very academic journalistic background, which is not something that most people who are journalists in cycling come from. And they do good work, but in issues like this, it seems like something that is so challenging for people to do because athletes are now charged with telling mm-hmm. their own story. And that's creating a climate of information that is just always going to be mm-hmm. transactional. And obviously I'm affiliated with Rodeo Labs and I race on my own, but from Rodeo Labs, from the conversations I've had with Steven, you might know, um, I have been like, look, let's do this as journalistically as possible. We've got one conflict of interest. Can't get away from that, right? If we're talking about bikes, we're not going to avoid conflict of interest. But what we can do is be like, this is who we are. We're a bike company. We make bikes. But we also think about other things and we want to tell stories and illuminate stuff. So for racing, we don't promote a race beyond Send Armenia, which is its own 
bikepacking world is its own yeah. category of thing. Um, but we can look at things like races and route building and public infrastructure and what goes into the other side of it with, I think, a conscious that, yes, we have a conflict of interest, but it's limited. And I think that's what's really hard to find in the sport where you've got companies and athletes that are always yeah. going to be aligned because that's the yeah. only way that it works. It's an yeah. interesting challenge. I mean, you're like the independent, I mean, you're like me as an independent event owner or athlete, you're independent media outlet. And yeah, how, you know, hopefully telling honest stories, but you're competing with, you know, giant corporate entities. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this series. I put a lot of work into the reporting and I hope you enjoyed to hear a little bit of a nuanced conversation about races from race directors. We'll be back next week with the next part of the series. Thank you to all the race promoters who took the time to sit down with me to do these interviews that made up the episode. Some didn't make the final cut, but we appreciate you nonetheless. You can look at the show notes for all of the races that were referenced and all the race directors who were featured in reporting both pre and post. And you can look at the Rodeo Labs journal for a little write-up about the episode. Thank you and see you down the road.